Well, good day, everyone, and welcome to our FS Club webinar on innovation and the law. Uh, you will know me. I'm Michael Minelli. I'm one of the directors of Zien, and it is my privilege to be able to introduce uh, this event. And it's one that uh, is really quite important to me, and I'll explain in a moment why. We are delighted, though, that we're able to hold these, and it's really only through the forbearance and tolerance and interests of our of our sponsors. As you can see, we have numerous sponsors around the world. Uh, anything to do with technology, economics, finance, and today the law is, of course, of great importance to them. Uh, the rule of law is the basis for the financial centers who sponsor us. Uh, law systems are provided by many of our sponsors as well. Uh, and we're going to come on to some of the issues to do with technology and the law in this session. Now, I'm not going to introduce our speakers, uh, Sam Muller coming in uh, today from the Netherlands and Michael Grant coming in from distant London. We are here really to, to get into the subject matter. Uh, and I am here to get out of your way and let you hear from the experts. But uh, if you'd like to refresh your minds on their CVs, they're on the website and on the uh, email that was sent to you. Um, I'd just like to start with a, a personal statement that this year I am sheriff of the city of London and my theme has been promotion of the rule of law. And as a business person, resident, believe it or not, in the Old Bailey, uh, sitting above 18 courts in my apartment or uh, with uh, something like 400,000 square feet of judicial space, I've been on a bit of a crash course. <clears throat> and crash course is, I think, going to be the theme today. It's often said that innovation only happens when your back's to the wall. And this year, the multi-cloud, uh, sorry, the cloud video platform project that had been languishing uh, in the courts, it was a project really to get all of the courts connected. Uh, it was being risk managed, i.e. it was going very slowly. Uh, and suddenly uh, in March, the project was fast-tracked when the first lockdown suspended new jury trials, urgent and essential hearings in the Old Bailey were suddenly conducted through Skype. It took a while to ramp up the tech and training but instead of years, the project was complete by early summer uh, by taking on a bit of risk, tossing out parts of the procurement rulebook, uh, the recorders team achieved great rewards. So uh, this is an opportunity, I think, to talk about how the law uh, might be refounded. Now, we're going to have uh, two sessions here. Uh, first, uh, Dr. Mueller is going to talk about his experiences over at HIIL. Uh, he'll be speaking for about 15 minutes or so. Uh, and then Michael Grant uh, will be coming back in with uh, a, a perspective more from technology uh, and also from the UK. So with no further ado, uh, Sam, if I may, you know, the floor is very much yours. Thank you very much, Michael. Uh, dear friends, um, uh, on 22 October, uh, 22 ministers of justice uh, came together online um, for 90 minutes. Um, Michael, you might show the slide of that. They were convened by the Minister of Justice for Canada and partners of the Pathfinders for Justice, which is a group of like-minded UN member states that focuses on sustainable development goal 16, which includes justice. And they were asked to share what they were doing and what was worrying them in the current crisis. Now, for me, the simple fact that the meeting happened at all was in itself an innovation. We pushed very hard for it. Uh, the multiple crisis that we're in, uh, a pandemic, an economic recession, and a lot of political and social upheaval are too big and too unprecedented to deal with only at your national level. Uh, 
So all these ministers shared experience about moving more justice support and delivery online. They spoke of digital signatures, online applications, online hearings, mobile paying of fines, online mediation, electronic case files, online registration, 24-7 helplines, and a lot more. Uh, the Minister of Justice of Belgium spoke of a giant leap that he was envisaging to build a single digital platform for citizens with which they could interact with the whole justice system. Now, one side of me was very happy to hear all this. Something is clearly shifting towards online, digital, and towards simplification of justice systems. But another side of me was worried. Because listening to these 22 ministers from all over the world, I heard very little about root causes and fundamentals. And the main point I want to make this morning is that, frankly, it would not be all that helpful for the world, in my view, if the existing systems were to be captured in digital stone. You see, there is evidence that, on the whole, justice systems the world over are not delivering what they should and what they could. And this despite the promise of Sustainable Development Goal 16.3. And let me quickly read that to you. The heads of state and government of every single country of the world agreed in Goal 16 to promote peaceful and inclusive societies for sustainable development. And here it comes, to provide access to justice for all and to build effective, accountable, and inclusive institutions at all levels. The British government, the Dutch government, the Tanzanian government, they all agreed to this. Next slide, Mike. In its widely acclaimed report, Justice for All, um, the, uh, which was published last year, the Task Force on Justice that was set up by the Pathfinders I just referred to, uh, showed in a big meta-study that we helped pull together um, that in total 5.1 billion people, that's two-thirds of the world population, lack meaningful access to justice. Uh, 253 million people live in extreme conditions of injustice. These are people held in slavery, refugees with no rights at all. About 1.5 billion people, that's about an eighth of the world population, have justice problems that they cannot resolve. And, and these are people like us with so-called ordinary civil, administrative, and crime-related problems. 4.5 billion people are excluded from the opportunities that the law provides. They, for example, lack identity, they don't know the law, or they live too far away from justice providers. With COVID-19 and the awful economic crisis that it's coming in its wake, all signs are that it's worse now. And the task force had a very simple message, which is now slowly gaining traction. Focus on prevention and resolution of justice problems, not on institutions. You need institutions to do that, but focus on prevention and resolution of justice problems. Focus on outcomes and let that be your lodestar. And if you look at outcomes and you measure against that, we have a serious problem in the world. First of all, in my many, many conversations with them, I've not found almost a single minister of justice, chief justice or president of bar association that considers prevention of justice problems part of their work. They focus on resolution. Which is odd. We know from the health sector that prevention strategies have added a lot more health to people's lives than cures. Clean water and healthy food have done a lot more than hospitals. Next slide. Secondly, 
we know that resolution rates are not that impressive and have remained so despite a lot of hard work and large sums of money uh, over many, many decades. On average, in the countries that we've surveyed, only 24% of the people reached a complete resolution and another 9% report a partial solution. The others, at the time we asked them, don't even try, drop out of the resolution process, or are still trying, usually more than two, three, four, five years. Now, which countries do you want to know? Well, these are countries in Africa, the MENA regions, but also countries like the Netherlands and Ukraine. This is a pretty universal picture. Next slide. We did a survey, a COVID justice survey, amongst 300, a little under 300 justice leaders in July of this year. And most of them tell us that resolution rates will further decrease and are further decreasing. Evictions, bankruptcies, family issues resulting from death, domestic violence, contract enforcement, access to public services. These are but some of the areas in which demand for justice is increasing substantially. Next slide. The data also shows that less than 5% of the people uh, with problems use lawyers, and NGO-supported services are only so serving a small percentage of people, and only some government-supported community courts or, or similar mechanisms have a market share of around 20%. Next slide. In health terms, what we see is that the existing treatments generally, and I'm generalizing a bit here, but the existing treatments consisting of complex, formal, largely adversarial procedures with little attention for prevention, and the existing delivery models, which are mostly judges, lawyers, legal aid, and many small initiatives that can't really reach scale, are not delivering enough. And I would argue that these are not systems you want to digitalize at least not just like that. We need to innovate first. We need to look at the fundamentals, examine the systems themselves. A CEO friend of mine makes the distinction between change and transformation. Change, he says, is shallow. You paint a door that is red and you make it green. Nice. Transformation is deeper. You ask the question whether the door is needed in the first place. You ask how it's used, and then, based on your answers, you may or may not paint it. What we need is a transformation to people-centered justice, as the Task Force on Justice calls it. Justice that resolves people's justice problems, prevents injustices large and small from occurring, and that creates opportunities for people to participate fully in their societies and economies. And at Hill, we call it user-friendly justice. If we move to tech without looking at the fundamentals, we'll be technologizing something that is not working well. Now, you may think that is a huge undertaking. How can we achieve that? And I respond, there's good news. We have a crisis we could use. Because the current crisis situation also presents a tremendous opportunity, horrible as it may sound, on the back of so much suffering. The case for transformation is easier to make. Than ever. First, demand for justice services is up, as I've said. Justice is essential to ensure that the burdens caused by COVID are shared equitably. It's essential for economic recovery and it cements and builds the trust and social cohesion we so badly need. Secondly, 
while demand is up, there's also less funding. Globally, GDPs are going down, and they will be for some time. Now, what's the only way out when you have more demand and less funding? To innovate, to transform. And that's not the same as a tech solution. Now, Michael only gave me 15 minutes, and I want to hear your questions. So I can't go into a lot of detail about how you make this transformation happen. At Hill, we've been working on it for 15 years now, and we're starting to get a fairly good picture of what is needed. For the sake of time, let me share two fundamental things we need to get it right. First, every country needs to get serious about evidence-based working in the justice sector. Without that foundation, we will at best be able to organize change, but not transformation. Every country needs to know at any moment what justice problems which people have. We've seen that only 60% of the justice problems that people have fall into five categories, land, employment, family, neighbors, and crime. And in the wealthier countries, land is often replaced by consumer problems. As a country that spends money on justice, you need to know, are people are getting enough prevention and resolution for these problems? What do their justice journeys look like? Can they be improved? What justice treatments are working? Which justice delivery models are effective? And this in turn means that each country should have the capacity to collect such data about justice needs and about what is working to meet them. That would be a great place to start to use technology. Countries could develop shared protocols, best practices and applications to collect such data. Platforms could be developed on which to share such data and to make it easy to use for policymakers. I've been calling for an IPCC on justice, just like we have in the climate change world, an IPJC. And if that's too ambitious, what about a series of small IPJCs in most countries? Next slide, Michael. The second thing we need to change is the justice marketplace. Justice needs a functional marketplace that welcomes innovation, public-private partnerships, and that attracts new forms of financing. There are, after all, a lot of potential clients, as the data shows. That's not a market with only two types of service providers full of complex rules and regulations and limited public accountability for outcomes. The current way the justice market is organized does not really make transformation possible. In a market that works, you can come up with a great idea that delivers a badly needed service and you can develop it further. You could find funding, get innovation support, find, find partners, you can set up collaboration with the government and other relevant justice institutions if it's very risky. We can look at the public health systems in most European countries, which in a clever mix between public and private, guaranteeing equal access for all, are open to entrepreneurship and innovation. That does not really exist in most justice systems. We conclude in our 2019 trend report on financing justice that one of the reasons why innovation money is not flowing to the justice sector is because there are not enough good value propositions that can scale. And that's also what I hear from impact investors. And that's largely because the marketplace doesn't work. Some of the bottlenecks are laws and regulations and the often complex adversarial procedures that they codify. Data and evidence doesn't show that this works best. 
the regulation of legal services that make it hard to implement innovations with attractive revenue and operational models. The financial agree arrangements in the justice sector from budgeting at ministries and councils for the judiciaries um, to fees and subsidies and investments, money doesn't flow to the most effective and efficient services. And lastly, procurement rules that make it very difficult for courts and governments to implement innovations that are developed by innovators in the country. Let me wrap up because I'm anxious to get into a conversation with you. Yes, technology can offer us a lot. I've seen some amazing stuff like this one, Law Paddy from Nigeria. It builds legal advice chatbots for people with simple legal problems, accessible with cheap made in China phones. Law Paddy needs to be very careful not to upset the Bar Association with bots giving legal advice. Next one, Crime Sync from Sierra Leone that links all justice agencies that work with prisoners so that not a single prisoner could get lost in the system again. It was developed by a local tech entrepreneur at a fraction of the cost of the average case management system that the West often imposes on countries like Sierra Leone. How can it scale beyond Sierra Leone where each justice ministry wants to custom make or buy its own legal system, often wasting huge sums of money in the process? Next one, Justice for Two, a user-friendly online tool for divorce that can be configured for many kinds of disputes and that runs in the Netherlands. The system organizes a dialogue that is based on the latest knowledge about effectively solving disputes. It's not adversarial, it's empowering, it's easy to use. It allows couples to co-develop a solution that is then checked by a lawyer and ratified by a judge. User satisfaction is high, higher than courts. But the Ministry of Justice will not formally endorse it, and the Bar Association will not em embrace it. Last slide, Michael. Dear friends, the point I'm trying to make is we cannot stop our technology. Our systems, our justice systems, need a fundamental redesign. And technology is part of that, but only part of it. Thank you. Sam, that was fantastic. What, what, a, what, a, what a wonderful opening. And I, I can't agree more. How fair is justice if you don't have access to it? Michael, the floor is now yours. Thank you. Could I have my first slide, please, uh, Michael? Thank you very much. Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Um, the next, in the next few minutes, I'm going to attempt to cover a really huge topic, and I'm therefore going to just focus on the courtroom activities. And I'm going to talk through these three areas. So let's get stuck straight into the first one, shall we? The challenge of disruptive technology for the legal process. Now, these tech changes, of course, impact both the formal court procedures as well as the ways in which lawyers work with clients across different jurisdictions, wherever you are in the world. Now, many courts and judges, if I'm honest, historically have been a bit reluctant to innovate and may be inherently conservative with, of course, a small c. Many courts uh, use tech to replace existing systems rather than, of course, focusing as they should be on reforming structures and processes within the justice system. Professor Richard Suskind argues that to use technology to change what we're doing is absolutely not the right thing. What we should be doing is, is not just adding to what we do. Um, and of course, the legal system needs fixing and, and uh, technology, as he says, can really be a great ally here. He demands that we go back to the drawing board. 
Now, for us lucky people in the UK, we perhaps might argue that uh, um, our English courts were relatively well prepared for using tech and, and hearings and, and, and able to respond although pretty well okay to the demands of the pandemic. But let's, let's turn to what the technology change and lessons learned were during our COVID-19 period to date. There has, of course, been a massive technology acceleration. Some people would say we, we shifted five years in a mere three months. And remote courts were very, very quickly set up worldwide for remote hearings. Um, many, of course, having no physical courtroom use whatsoever. Video hearings have been working well and actually quite a bit better than expected. But the future has not yet arrived and COVID is purely a trial for the future. English courts have been using BT Meet Me for audio hearings, uh, Skype for business where uh, videos required. And the public in many instances are, are given, if you like, transparency to the whole uh, process through YouTube. Uh, witness statements, um, uh, as Sam has mentioned, uh, um, are, are taken virtually even with an electronic signature. Some innovative law firms are actually offering case extranets, allowing uh, management of complex disputes um, and legal collaboration to a level never seen before. And machine learning patterns and predictions for cases are now, I hasten to add, somewhat better than the lawyers. And potentially, even this could go as far as judgments. And document review through uh, artificial intelligence is far better, I think indisputably better, than using junior lawyers by using, of course, these vast data resources that are available to us. Um, AI um, ha has already fueled a, a massive shift in new technologies, uh, such as natural language processing, where machine learning holds great promise in legal and a legal system that, after all, is really based on words. Um, some tools are helping lawyers to perform legal research, to predict case outcomes, to decide which arguments even to lay before the judge in the first place. There's tons of advice already available online via chat box and apps and, and some that um, um, uh, have been mentioned as well by Sam. Uh, the Turbo Box, uh, my favorite, I think, has to be Rocket Lawyer, <laughs> which, which helped complete some of those incredibly complex documents, which could be ranging from uh, uh, as far as taxes at one end and, and divorce at the other. There are thousands of simple disputes which are being resolved with e, what, what I would describe as eBay systems, arguments between buyers and, and sellers. And there's very, very little human intervention actually taking place in any of those at all, bringing e-justice through online dispute resolution, which I'm going to call in future ODR, very important. Um, there's the formation of the Civil Money Claim Project has uh, created a brand new online court for small claims. In Europe, some 47 states have unanimously decided to adopt ODR in their justice systems, which is, I think, great news. So what lays ahead for technology and the legal process? Sam's already warned um, of this tsunami of back cases as a result of COVID-19. In Brazil alone, there are 80 million back cases to resolve. Some people have suggested those might take 
300 years to clear. Only really technology can help turn that around. And this problem also exists here in the UK as well. The backlog is a massive challenge for the future. We can expect to see a greater use of pervasive, if perhaps controversial, face recognition systems that recognize emotions and honesty through a, a pure smile or even a frown on your face. There'll be much more focus on cybersecurity. I mean, after all, how are we actually going to control who attends or barges into some of these virtual court meetings? There'll be more use of uh, data litigation analytics to support um, data driven on risk claims, um, right the way through to uh, avoiding disputes in the first place, that very important area that Sam mentioned. And um, blockchain will help um, hyperledger and uh, smart contracts. And there'll be further advances in speech to text, and of course, um, text to speech, using multiple languages. Um, some have said uh, that there is likely to be a hybrid, uh, a hybrid approach uh, for hearings in the future. Perhaps there might be a, a judge and a jury and a courthouse, or, or maybe the lawyers and the witnesses will be joining through video. Um, and that, that, of course, can be done in many different ways. And as I understand, it is a much favored approach in the United States. Expect to see vital international standards being set for ODR through the International Council of Online Dispute Resolution. There'll be further tools to augment the quality and the, the actual effectiveness of lawyers' professional skills. And they'll be developed through um, further AI developments as well. So hopefully, I really mean this, hopefully there will be a greater focus on trust and reliability as more tech software evolves to be used in law. Uh, there might even be a, a, a new job role for IT technicians in every court to support the judges and of course, the smooth running of the cases. Perhaps more importantly, there will be a change in legal culture. It's no longer just the, the grandchildren of the judge that can master Zoom and the laptop and a webcam, but of course, the judges themselves. We will be developing tech systems to avoid future disputes and to replace the old ways of working. And as Churchill quoted, never let a good crisis go to waste. Thank you, Michael. Uh, it's very interesting, because, but thank you, Michael. When I was uh, working in the manufacturing sector in the late 70s and 80s, we had a mantra of simplify, then automate, and then try and integrate the systems together. Uh, and I'm wondering, could, could either of you suggest a big area that we could simplify in the law now uh, before we got into the IT systems that might support it? Well, Michael, that's a really good question. So the thing that really annoyed me with uh, in that ministerial session is that the ministers that were advocating for simplification, which some of them were, were doing so because they had learned that uh, digitalizing these very complex procedures cost a lot of money and was very, very hard to do. They were not saying that because the justice clients of the world want simplification. They were not thinking user-centered at all. That did not appear in their vocabulary anyway. And that's where we should start. The average person that goes through the average divorce or the average bankruptcy or the any legal procedure, it is too complex. It, most of them don't understand what's happening, how it's going, and you need a huge head start 
to be able to understand that. E even me as a lawyer, you know, uh, there's a lot of it I don't understand. So I think simplification um, uh, and simplification, in my view, will be largely driven um, uh, by evidence. Uh, you know, if if you look at the way a user would like a a a, a um, dispute to be resolved, they they want a process they understand. They want something that is fairly quickly. Most people that have a justice problem want it resolved quickly and want to move on. And if the process is somewhat fair and they lose, most people don't mind. Most justice problems are solved in some kind of agreement. It's only very few of them that have to end up in court where there is a, a, an absolute yay or nay. So um, I think simplification is absolutely critical. Okay. Um, Jane in West London asks, uh, in theory, rule-based systems should be able to resolve many justice problems. In practice, each jurisdiction has subtly or unsubtly different rules. Uh, wouldn't we need international standards rules for many justice problems in order to see, achieve a global sea change? in access to and speed of justice. Michael, any thoughts there? Well, I think that the, 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 the whole international standards area is absolutely critical. And I, I mentioned briefly that, that in terms of ODR. Um, if you don't have standards across the legal system on a global basis, I can't see how international disputes could ever, ever um, be, be resolved. And, uh, and this, this whole area of, of standardization is one which I'm really delighted to see most of the European states are, are really focusing on. And we had a session last week on e-signatures, electronic signatures in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, contrasting nine countries, and in a sense with fairly modern judicial systems, in the sense they've been renovated in, in a sense. And it was surprising how little commonality there was just on the area of acceptance of e-signatures. So. Uh, which one would have thought would be fairly fairly common. Um, Sam, uh, Bob McDowell is a lawyer in the Channel Islands, and he's asking uh, you to comment on, isn't there a distinction between access to justice and access to the legal system? Wow, that's a, that's a, that's a deep one. Um, I, I suppose you could say that. I mean, the the access to the legal system. You see, the, the legal system is 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 a big thing. Huh? It it I, I always very simply bring it down to a system that helps us kind of coordinate and make rules. It helps us enforce those rules, and it helps us deal with disputes we have around those rules. Um, and all that together is the legal system. And 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 we could get. We could get very philosophical about what is the legal system. Is it only the formal system? Is it the informal system? Um, I guess I take a very simple approach. Uh, in the end, um, what uh, a legal system? I, I I've started to be, expand my my own definition of a legal system a little a little more in the course of my life. In in, in essence, I think it should be uh, a relationship management system, a country that has you know that has well has a good relationship management system is a country with a lot of social capital with a lot of trust and on every single standard ec economically also if you look at the countries that are doing best in terms in this crisis are countries where social capital works where there is trust where people uh, can rely on each other where there is cohesion it's the it's in many ways data shows much more important or at least as important as as economic power 
having social capital and economic capital, social capital is, is underestimated. And what a legal system ought to do is contribute and be a good functioning uh, relationship management system that allows people to yeah, deal with differences, which they will un inevitably have uh, in, in the best way possible. And then we should put those users at the center. And, and that's maybe just a quick going back to the previous question. You know, yes, the rules per country are different. But what you're increasingly starting to see, for example, with the amazing work uh, of the behavioral economists, you know, psychology, neurology, and psychology are not, uh, sociology are not all that different. Um, so you may have different rules, but I have not seen one study anywhere uh, in the psychology or neurology that says if two people have a dispute, that it's a really good idea for both people to go to two people who are blessed, who are dressed in black gowns, explain in ordinary language what their problem is, so they could translate it into really complex language, go to a third party, have a discussion, really complex language, translate it back, and then go back to me. Nothing anywhere says that that is a good way to do it. So let's go back to the evidence and see what works. Well, I'm not sure the prelate in my Orthodox church would agree that not going to people in black is a good way to solve disputes, but I, see, I get your point. Uh, Michael, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce the name properly, so my apologies in advance, but Vedagi Pillay would like to know, as a current undergraduate law student, uh, what technology do you suggest I pay particular attention to? Oh, <laughs> I would say cyber technology, uh, uh, cyber security. Um, one, because uh, there's a great shortage of skill sets in that whole area, um, and, and also because, of course, um, uh, cybersecurity people in the IT business are absolute top dollar earners, <laughs> and if he's got, if he's a lawyer on top of that, he, he's got a very bright future. Well, that that, um, that, that actually comes to a point indirectly uh, that, that bothers me in a way. Um, uh, this question here, you know, would more extensive deployment of technology finally bury the windy rhetoric of the old style advocate? Um, which, which is a great point, but there's a, there's a deeper subtlety to that, Sam. You, you spoke about a marketplace, and this has been a marketplace that many senses is dominated by time, and so the motivation in a marketplace dominated by time is not to shrink it. We've seen this, for example, in the uh, auditing sector, which has actually had negative productivity uh, for the last 20 years, because the more time they spend auditing accounts, the more money they make, so there's very little motivation for change. Uh, how, how do you see that in terms of your marketplace thinking? Uh, that's, but that, that's exactly the point I was trying to make. I, I think it is a market with, with, with limited public accountability. Um, and the, that's also why I, I believe that the conclusion of the Task Force on Justice and, and the, the, the idea of such an international panel on justice change or some kind of, some kind of a lighthouse, some kind of place, observatory in each justice system that just monitors outcomes. You see, the thing, the difference between the health sector and the justice sector is that in the just in the health sector, if uh, diabetes or cancer patients or or high blood pressure patients are not treated very well, those outcomes are visible. They are um, that that voice is heard. There are in each country associations of cancer patients who then are able to put it out there. That data is being followed. In the justice sector. There are no, there is no association of divorce patients or association of inheritance patients. That voice is not heard. They're all suffering individually from something that isn't really working. And they're all grinning and bearing it in many ways. And we need to bring that voice in. So 
I think having in each country a place where you monitor outcomes, and there are countries, Niger, you will not believe it, one of the poorest countries in the world um, uh, where, we, where we now work. And um, I was uh, uh, invited by the Minister of Justice. We had a wonderful time in, in November last year. They have something called the Etat Généraux de la Justice, which is a, um, a, a grouping of all the main actors in the justice sector, formal system, informal system. And every year that Etat Généraux de la Justice comes together and looks at the report card, the scorecard, based on outcomes that the citizens are giving to the justice system. And that then is a way that they look at their next, next strategy. I don't know any other country that has done that. Now, is the measuring they do perfect? No. Is it always working? Is it low budget? Yeah, there's a lot you could say about that, but I think that's really a good way forward. Hmm. Um, you, you distinguished, Michael, in your very opening remarks that you're talking about one area of the law, and a lot of people here are pointing out that civil justice differs from criminal justice. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, and also, you know, the, the role of precedent, you know, one of the great things about justice is supposed to be precedent. Precedent is very hard to overturn. So there's a lot of questions there. And I personally have seen negative effects on, uh, on technology. Um, I, I take a particular area of discovery. We, we now have these automated discovery systems and quite deliberately in large intellectual property cases, people are delivering, and I, I happen to know personally, 30 C contain, you know, container loads of documents deliberately to bamboozle the opposition. All of those containers, 30 large containers, need to be scanned, put into your OCR systems, AI runs over it, uh, the other party has to do similar. I mean, this is just kind of mutually assured destruction. And I, uh, and this is not a good effect of technology. So uh, do you, either of you see this? I mean, in the, in the, in the criminal area, there's at least a constraint on how much the public want to spend. Uh, but in the civil area, it's out of control. What are your thoughts on rates of adoption in either area? Michael, I might start with you if that's okay. Well, I, I, without a shadow of a doubt, um, in terms of collecting data, facts, past um, cases, um, judges, um, views and opinions, and which, which cases have won or not been won, um, AI can be massively, massively helpful in predictions in that area. And uh, in terms of, of document um, perusal, in terms of document, uh, I mean, I mean if, if you think of the millions of documents that can be handled through AI, which are significantly greater than, than any sort of normal human being lawyer, uh, I would have thought that AI could be a great help in that area and rather than a hindrance. Yeah, Michael, I make a distinction between um, on, on this one in civil justice area between the you know yeah the the, the big the big companies with their big intellectual property thing and just the the so-called mundane justice the ordinary justice that that most people face uh, in, in the area of civil justice and and frankly most ordinary citizens don't even know the difference between whether it's criminal or whether it's administrative or whether it's 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 civil, you see that very clearly in the area of debts, for example, where where these things kind of intertwine. But I would say that the the, the in the area of mundane justice and and the justice for two uh, is a great example of that, where AI is used so that the parties have all been able have all been guided through a dialogue in which they formulate 
their interests, the things they want to secure, the things that are important for them in, in, in the divorce, and then supported by an AI system, the, the system is able to come up with solutions that have worked in most cases for most couples in a similar situation as you. And they're able to present that to the, uh, to the parties to look at, and, and then based on that, they could refine it, and then they could move forward. That's, I think, a really easy and, and good use of something like, like, like AI. But indeed, when it, be, when, when it starts producing sea containers full of papers, we've lost the plot, I think. <laughs> well, I, it's just that sometimes on the other end of 30 sea containers is not a large company. It might be a sole person with a patent. Um, so just, yeah, it, it, it's yep. not as simple as that. Patrick Tolhurst uh, makes a comment here, which I'd just like to share with everyone. We've developed automated software for company and shareholder management, voting and interactions with UK authorities. One of the things that we have discovered is that the problem that it is possible to over-engineer and make products that are too complicated and difficult for users. So, you know, very much agreeing with with you on the simplification bit, um, and wondering, in fact, uh, should legal technologists in the future focus on AI or improving and automating simple processes? Um, I've got an interesting question here from Ian Harris. Um, I think this is for you, perhaps, Michael. Uh, personally, I favor innovative technological solutions to help solve all problems, but I worry that many citizens do not trust authority and do not trust technology. Uh, I hear what you both say about evidence, but we currently seem to be living in a counter-evidential area if the U.S. election, for example, is anything to go by. And I sort of see in point here, you know, I went to the court, but it was rigged against me. You know, who needs a deep state when we've got deep law? Uh, because the system, you know, the system's pronounced and I lose out. Any thoughts on that, Michael? Well, I think ethical standards um, in technology are incredibly important, and particularly um, in the area of AI development. Uh, you know, you, if, if people are building algorithms which can change people's lives, better off worse, you better be darn sure that the professionals um, who are doing it are, one, well qualified, and two, have the right spirit and ethical approach to life. And uh, uh, certainly, uh, from, from my point of view, this is one of the things which, for example, the British Computer Society, that's the Institute for IT, is very heavily based on. And trying to ensure that um, there are good qualified professionals in those roles where these things can go wrong and, and, and ethical standards are next to nothing in terms of importance. We still have a lot of questions. I, I might overrun by a minute or two, but let, let's, uh, if we can tackle a few quickly. Sam, I think this is for you. Uh, it's from Edwina Morton. There is some evidence that people can be pushed into less formal justice procedures in ways that disadvantage them. Some would argue that religious courts rarely benefit women. Uh, are there not dangers to real justice from the emphasis of less formal procedures? Um, oh, yes. You, one needs to be very, very careful there. And, and, and there's no... There's no easy answer. In, in many of the countries that I've worked, um, a slightly less good religious court is better than no court. Um, uh, so you're up against those kind of dilemmas. But also there, I have seen some great examples of where technology can be used to improve the quality of these informal justice mechanisms by making, for example, the voices of women uh, visible and, and clear and by doing ratings of informal justice systems, um, just like we do them on Amazon.com, 
whether you know on a number of bandwidths you were actually given what you were given and then the formal system could intervene if there's a chronic bias against uh, against for example women uh, or if there is corruption and, and there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in in that area in Uganda where we work you know they, they are trying to to strengthen what many people call informal justice but at the same time making sure the informal justice has the quality uh, that it's supposed to have and in Kenya as well and then how do you balance what the formal justice system does because the formal justice system can't take on everything um, and has the right kind of interventions um, but I think technology and again data is a really useful tool to get that balance right. All right, I'm going to try to squeeze two in quickly. Uh, Michael, a question for you. Uh, in the UK, as you know, we have an extensive lay magistrate system for criminal law. Um, perhaps it could be improved, but it, it seems to work reasonably well. You know, would you advocate a, a system of lay justices for civil law as well as for criminal? And uh, either of you, do you know of examples of lay magistracy systems for civil law working in other countries? Mm. <laughs> Good question. I don't see from a from a technical perspective um, why one shouldn't apply this in, into both areas. I mean, lay, lay people these days can be very technically orientated. Um, a lot of magistrates I know, um, uh, uh, you know, come actually out of a technical background, and I, I would have thought that that was not an unreasonable expectation for the future. Okay. And a question to close for both of you, um, uh, perhaps uh, Sam first and then Michael. Um, this is from Stephen Castell. What is the political and economic attraction to a government to transform, you know, to fix this prevention of justice problem? It sounds like it could be very expensive with little political or economic return. So why should any government bother with it? Nice in theory, unlikely in practice. Uh, the economic hit of COVID uh, could make it even more unattractive and impossible. Uh, any remarks uh, on that and um, any closing remarks as well, Sam? Brilliant question and one that I discuss a lot with with ministers of justice that I that I meet all, all over the world. And indeed, making the business case for justice is is not that easy um, and we need to get much better at it. But some things are, are, are quite clear. As I said, a good justice system is the single best contributor to um, uh, social cohesion and trust within society. And that's what you want. Uh, there are also clear data that show that a good, well-functioning justice system is really good for SMEs and for innovation. And uh, without that, there is no investment in innovation. And um, uh, so for the economy, it's also really good. There are also studies that show that good justice systems are good for health. My wife is a GP. Um, everybody that is in a divorce, almost everybody ends up on her desk at a GP because they have health problems, because the system is so stressful and so difficult to do. So there, there are, you know, there's mounting evidence, but it, but, and it's slowly being collected, but we need to be better at making that, um, making that business case for sure. And I would suggest that um, if technology can help save time, that is going to save immense costs, particularly in the legal profession in, in many different ways. Uh, and if I may, I'm going to just take this quick opportunity because, funnily enough, uh, Dr. Stephen Castell is actually one of the BCS IT law specialist group. And uh, both he and Nigel Young and Graham Ross have been tremendously helpful in taking me through a pretty steep learning curve. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, and Stephen uh, is actually online here suggesting maybe uh, the subject of a whole future seminar would be private sector law. 
you know, Sam, you, you mentioned this idea of impact investors looking at this sector. Um, it'd be interesting almost to look at it as an investment opportunity. Definitely. Um, that, 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 could, that, that could be uh, really quite fascinating. Uh, sadly, folks, um, you know, there are many uh, questions and comments out here about ethics, uh, about skill shortages, uh, uh, about the, the marketplace. Um, and, and in fact, you know, even one I'd love to talk about, which is access uh, up to IT. Why, for example, when we have shareware systems such as Jitsi or BlueJeans for video conferencing, are people actually using Zoom and Teams and Skype, which are commercial? Um, so I think we, we, could, we could go on for ages, as, as we all know. Uh, and we had a great warm up chat, too. But sadly, I do have to bring it to a close. So always a sign uh, when I get all, a lot of thank yous. Uh, and I would start to say, if I could hold for just a second, firstly, uh, thank you very much to our sponsors, uh, many of them providing and integrating technology that would matter in this space. Uh, secondly, uh, to thank the audience, a particularly engaged audience today, which is extremely nice and some uh, deep questions, which I, I certainly appreciated. Uh, we uh, feature next week uh, quite a few events, uh, one of our city forum events on building a global Britain. Uh, with Madeline Moon and others dialing in from America discussing the post-Biden, uh, sorry, the post-Biden uh, win uh, and what the Biden administration might be doing, uh, new ways of investing in technology, uh, the future fintech in the UK post-Brexit uh, with Charlotte from Innovate Finance, data gravity, one I won't even try and explain, but first I think it is extremely interesting, does, does where the data ma uh, reside matter in terms of how financial centers are built? And finally, we're going to be looking at uh, Schrems 2, Brexit and data localization, the, the famous GDPR issues in Europe. But what I really need to do, most of all, is to thank the two of you. It's been a delight to work with you both. It's been fun setting this up. I've enjoyed the conversations ahead of time, and I've certainly enjoyed the conversation today. Unfortunately, I'm unable to open the floodgates of applause, so I have here my Buddhist karmic clapper, and I say thank you. And we hope to see you both. Again. Thank you. Take thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Yeah, me too. Thank you, Michael.